we've been in a, a series called Church Life and for several weeks now. And the underlying theme uh, in our series in Church Life for this round of Church Life messages has been the issue of unity. The issue of, uh, of, of unity and how critical it is. Because unity is absolutely critical to being the church. Unity is absolutely critical if we are going to be on mission and fulfill God's call on our life. Unity is critical if we are going to glorify God. Now today we're going to be talking about what it looks like to be united in, in mission. Uh, what it looks like in our lives individually, in our lives as a family, our lives as, as, as a church. And so I want to I just start with this, though. How many of you here have little kids or have had little kids? Most, most everybody in, in this service. Now, how many of you find it difficult to clean the house while your little kids are running loose? Yeah. Well, Josh, what was that? <laughs> All right. Thanks, 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 man. Thanks for your input. <laughs> One of the things that Josh Cass told me, our, our music guy, he said that trying to clean your house when you have little kids is, is like trying to brush your teeth while eating an Oreo. <laughs> and I was thinking about that. I'm like, that applies to so much of our lives, doesn't it? I mean, you make progress in one area, and then you lose ground in another. You make a, a $300 bonus at work, and then right afterwards, you get a speeding ticket. And your bonus is gone like that, right? You lose 20 pounds on a diet, then for your birthday, you get treated to an all-you-can-eat Brazilian barbecue. <laughs> you make progress in one relationship, and then another relationship falls apart. You get encouraged to, to, you know, be involved in ministry, and so you do. And then you find out that a lot of it's not encouraging in the way that you thought it was going to be. You find out that the way to really live means dying to self. And when that realization hits you, it can throw you for a loop. So often, our lives feel like we're taking one step forward and two steps back, right? And so we get discouraged, and so often we find ourselves thinking, you know what, it just doesn't seem worth it. It really shouldn't be this difficult. You know, everything just seems totally pointless. Why should I even try? And here's the deal. One of our basic needs is to know that we are making a difference. We want to see progress. We want to see results. We want to see the fruit of our labor. You know why? Well, I'll tell you where that comes from. That desire for a truly significant life is wrapped up in God's plan for your life. But so often we miss it. We have our own plans, don't we? Well, true significance is wrapped up in God's plan for your life. And you know what? Sometimes we have a pretty good idea what God's calling us to do. But then we feel inadequate ill-equipped. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else feel that way? We're too weak. Our circumstances just won't less allow us to do what we think that, that, that we should do. If you're anything like me, you have a feeling that, that God is limited by our limitations. 
When it comes down to it, that's, that's what we think, that God is limited by our limitations. And what I want all of us to see this morning and see in a clearer way and, and believe in a, in a stronger way, including me, is to see what God can do through us in spite of our limitations. So here's what we need to clarify this morning. What is God's agenda for the Christian life? What's God's agenda for church life? And what are the resources that he freely provides for us in order to fulfill that calling? Now, the passage that we're looking at is pretty short, but I'm telling you, it is just so packed and jumps out uh, uh, from the page when, when you read it that, that we need to just focus on this verse, I think. So let me give you, since it is short, let me give you the context it is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' public teaching is over, and, and now he's in the upper room talking to his disciples about what the Christian life looks like, what true church life looks like after he's gone. You know, he tells them. I mean, they're following him. They devoted their lives to him. They believe um, that, that he is the one that they should be following, and then he says, I'm leaving you. And you can't come with me. Oh, and one of you is going to betray me. And Peter, you're going to deny me three times. How do you think that hit the disciples? I mean, how do you think that made, what went through their mind? I mean, they would have been clobbered with confusion and panic, right? And at this point, right after Jesus drops this bomb on them, they have a very limited view of reality. And you know what? That's exactly the way it is for us, too. We have a very limited view of reality. Things don't go the way that we imagined, and so we freak out. But in our text this morning, Jesus has something to say to his disciples, the disciples who are in the upper room, and to you and you and you and you and to me. So listen to what he says in John chapter 14, verse 12. This is crazy. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, <laughs> I could be wrong, but it sounded like Jesus just said that his followers will do even greater works than him. I mean, that's what it says. And it sounds like We'll be making a difference. It sounds like there will be impact. It sounds like there will be fruit of our labors. It sounds like, you know, we're going to see amazing things happen and, and, and that we won't be limited by our limitations. Now, this verse right here, if you take it seriously at all, raises a few questions, right? Like, first of all, if you're taking notes using the, the handout and your bulletin that we use for discussion in our crowded houses, if you're taking notes, the first question is this. Who can do these greater works? Now, some people will say that these greater works only apply to the apostles. And I understand why they would say something like that. I mean, I think this verse, I mean, if you take it seriously, if anyone takes it seriously, it bothers, it can bother us a lot, actually. Because if you have been a Christian for a while and, and you don't feel like you're making a difference or you don't see the fruit that you think that you need to see in your life, then you're not going to like this verse. 
And so we'll dismiss it and shrug it off. And, and people say, what, you see any of these kind of things happening today? Of course not. You know why? Because they're not meant for, for us. It doesn't apply to us. It's just meant for the apostles. It's just meant to uh, apply to them. But wait, okay? Time out for one second. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do, will do what I've been doing. So here's, here's what I was learned. This is a little confusing. So you do a little bit of a digging. And what's interesting, because sometimes things get lost in translation, what's interesting about the Greek to English translation for this is that the phrase, whoever believes in me, actually means whoever believes in me. <laughs> that is exactly what it means. I know, it's a little tricky, right? So again, who can do these greater things? Whoever believes in Jesus. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about disciples of Christ. He's talking about you. He's talking about our church. All of us who have faith in Jesus and are united in our cause to glorify God. So if we don't see these greater things, whatever they are, if we don't see them happening in our life, it's not because it does not apply to us. It's because there's some sense in which we don't really believe Jesus and his promise. And so then our lives kind of reflect that. Again, if you're like me, your default mode is to think that God is limited by our limitations. Jesus wanted to get our attention with this verse. He did not want us to shrug it off. He did not want us to dismiss us and think, oh, that applies to somebody else. Jesus is, is, is declaring this to move us. He's declaring this to, to give us a calling to, to live on the edge for him, to be a part of this crazy ride that the theologians call redemptive history. He's inviting us into something that is more significant than we could ever imagine, to be a part of something that counts for all eternity. And he is saying to us, I will not be limited by your limitations. I will do great things through you. Do you believe that this morning? So I've got another question. Say God is somehow working through us. The question, the next question in your notes is what can we do? Well, if God is working through us, we can do what Jesus did. Now, before, before I expand on that, let me, let me say this. We have a tendency, as we're reading the Bible, as we think about uh, you know, works of God, we have a tendency to simply distinguish between works that are natural and works that are supernatural, works that are ordinary and works that are extraordinary. But when you read the scriptures, you see that the Bible distinguishes between works of God and works of evil. Everything that Jesus did was the work of God. Feeding the 5,000, which is amazing, and washing the disciples' feet. Raising Lazarus from the dead and inviting the little children to come unto him. Turning water into wine and throwing over the tables and, the and 
um, charging it out the uh, money changers. My point is this. It simply comes down to works of God or works of evil. So Jesus says this. You will be doing what I've been doing. So, so what is it that he does? Well, let me mention three things. It's not in your notes, but you can write this down. Jesus showed the reality of the Father. By, by the way he lived his life, he showed people who God is, who God really is, and that God is active in this life. Over and over and over again, Jesus says things like, I showed you many good works from my Father, and the Father abiding in me does his work. And so, like Jesus, we will do things that show the reality of the Father, things that he has given us to do, things that he does through us. And you know what God does with that? God uses that to make himself real to people, people who are crushed with despair, people who are deceived by cynicism, people who are enslaved to empty religion. God has called us through word and deed to to show the reality of the Father, to be a living testimony of the kingdom of God every day, not just on Sundays. What else did Jesus do? He demonstrated God's power over evil. So you read the Gospels and you see that, that, that he cast out demons and he resisted temptation and he broke down the barriers of culture, race, ethnicity, and prejudice. And like Jesus, we will demonstrate God's power over evil. When we say no to temptation, no to sin, because we said yes to Jesus. Or when we work to overthrow oppression or injustice in in all of its forms, not with military might or manipulative, deceptive politics, but by representing Jesus and his kingdom of grace to everyone. And then third, Jesus illustrated God's love for people. When Jesus saw hurting people, he was moved with compassion and he reached out with the love and the truth of the Father to meet their needs, physical and spiritual. And like him, we will do things that illustrate God's people to a hurting people. We will make sacrifices of our time and our money and we will show them God's hospitality and do whatever it takes to show the love and truth of God to others. These are the works that Jesus does. And if we have faith in him, if we are a follower of Jesus, if we are Christians, if we are his disciples, we will do them as well. We won't just talk about them or think that they're good ideas or live vicariously through the church staff. We'll be involved in that. But on top of all that, there is this. We will also do even greater works than Jesus. That's what he said. I mean, I'm preaching this and I have a hard time. I feel like maybe I should kind of qualify that a little bit. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will do greater works than mine. Now, when God came to earth and he died on the cross, was raised from the dead and went back to heaven, that was pretty impressive, right? (laughs) To me, That seems to be the high point of God's work on earth. I mean, what more could we possibly expect after that? Especially, especially since Jesus left the church when it was in a horrible shape. 
When Jesus left the church, it was in horrible shape. One author put it this way. When Jesus started his church, the pastor, Jesus himself, was being executed. The chairman of the board, Peter, was out cursing and denying that, that he was any part of that church. The treasurer, Judas, was committing suicide. Most of the rest of the board members, the apostles, had run away. Only a few ladies from the women's fellowship were about the only ones that showed much faithfulness. That's how it goes. The church gets planted, falls apart, and Jesus leaves. But then what happens in the book of Acts after that? The church absolutely explodes across the nations. The disciples, only 120 of them, they wait and pray, but the Holy Spirit comes to them, and on the first day, bam, 3,000 people believed and were baptized. And then 5,000 believe. And then it says, multitudes constantly added as the gospel spreads, momentum builds. Now the disciples realize, oh, this is what Jesus was talking about. These are the greater things. When Jesus left, there were just a few of us, and now there are thousands upon thousands. The gospel is on the move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And now, today, there are approximately 2 billion Christians. You know, these greater things include the salvation of people's eternal souls. Jesus will be the first to tell you that raising Lazarus from the dead so that he could die again is nothing compared to delivering someone from eternal death so that they can live forever. There's no comparison. That is the greater thing. That is what changes the world. And I'm telling you right now, this promise right here is for us today. We can expect, we should expect to do what Jesus did, even greater things. Because, well, here's the deal. God does still move in miraculous ways, but the primary focus is on the greater impact of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing, and that he reigns over his kingdom. We can expect and we should expect people to be saved. We can expect and should expect lives to be transformed and Christ's church to expand and as well as, excuse me, and as we tell others the good news of Christ crucified and raised victorious to rule and reign over his kingdom of grace, we can have confidence that he will fulfill his purposes. These are the greater things. Now wait, let's ask the why question. Why can we do these greater works? Well, Jesus tells us, you will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That's the reason he gives. Because I'm going to the Father. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, even though I'm going to the Father. He doesn't say, in spite of the fact that I'm going to the Father. He says, because I am going to the Father. So that means that the basis 
for why we can do these works is wrapped up in the fact that Jesus is going to the Father. So what's that mean? Jesus is talking about the cross. He's talking about the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation. This is everything involved with Jesus going to the Father. Do you see what that is? That is what is behind the greater things. Jesus gives us a clear message, and the clear message is the gospel. See, before his death and resurrection exaltation, the, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't get the gospel. They didn't get the message. When Jesus started talking about dying for Peter, what does Peter say? Peter says, forget that. You're not going to die. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, you're going to lay down your life for me? You don't get it, Peter. In fact, none of them did. But after his death and resurrection, what does Jesus do? He spends 40 days talking to them and explaining to them, to them from the Old Testament, what they were very familiar with, but they still missed the message. He explained to them from the Old Testament that it was necessary for the Messiah to die and then be raised. It was the only way to destroy evil without destroying us. Jesus took the judgment that we deserved upon himself. And so we read in the book of Acts that the disciples have this incredibly clear message. And they proclaim that, that we come to you in the name of Jesus whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. He is the Messiah who paid for our sin, was raised on high, and will return to us one day. That is the clear message. And you know what? That's our message. That is the gospel. Second, Jesus brings us a greater power. Before his death, resurrection, and exaltation, Jesus' power was limited. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that Jesus limited himself, taking on bodily presence. He chose to become a man and would only be at one place at one time. But after his death, resurrection, and exaltation, Jesus poured out his spirit. Jesus returned to us by his spirit and now dwells within us individually and more importantly, collectively as living stones fitted together to be a dwelling place for his spirit. And the Holy Spirit is working within us. Jesus says, Jesus says, in John chapter 16, this, when, when he talks about, when Jesus is starting to teach about how he's going to send the comfort, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and what does the Holy Spirit do? Jesus explains to us, the Holy Spirit will bring glory to me, Jesus says. What that means is that the Spirit's purpose is to shine a spotlight on Jesus, to shine a spotlight on who Jesus is and what he has done for us through his unstoppable, powerful grace. Now listen, if we get that, it should not only make us humble, it should also make us incredibly bold. 
confident that God is going to use us to change our lives and to change our family, to change our neighborhoods as we put our faith in Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And evil will be pushed back as we advance and not with the sword and not with bullets and not with bombs, but with the power of God's love and grace. Do you believe that? Let me, let me ask you a few questions so that we can, right here, if, I, I don't want you to think about anything else or be distracted or preoccupied with, with, with anything else. Um, I want us to evaluate our hearts and lives. Take this opportunity right here, right now, to evaluate your heart, eva- evaluate your life. And the first, first, impo- first and foremost, the question is, am I a Christian? Are we Christians? And how do, we know, how do we know who we are? We talked about this a little bit last week. Who we are determines what we do. The world has that flipped. They think what we do determines who we are. It's just the opposite in the kingdom of God. The question is, do you trust in Jesus as your Lord, as your ultimate leader, as your savior, as your deliverer, or not? Do we live like it? Now, some of you aren't there yet. And I want you to know that, that, that we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're, you're listening. That we're, We hope that you ask questions. And if you have any questions, we will make ourselves available to talk with you about it and try to answer any questions you might have. You can talk to me, or better yet, uh, it would be great if you could talk to someone here that you know that already has a trust in Jesus. I mean, it would be good for them uh, to be asked that question and, and, and talk to you about that. So we encourage you to, to wrestle with that, not by yourself, but with other people. The second question is this. The second question is, are you involved in what Jesus is doing in the world? Are you involved? Is is our life prioritized by God's agenda of sharing his grace and his truth and unconditional love throughout the world? Is God's call on your life shaping your life? When we say that it is our mission to glorify God by leading people to and through a life-changing relationship with Jesus and his family, is that just a motto of the church you go to? Or do you own that? Do you have ownership with that? Not just by yourself, but collectively with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with your church family. So much so that that, that mission to lead, glorify God by leading people to and through a life-changing relationship with Jesus and your family gets lived out in your life and through your priorities with your brothers and sisters. So look, if, if following God's call on your life, I mean, if you have the spirit of Christ within you and then you love what Jesus loves and who you are determines what you do and, and you want to grow in that, something that's... That's why we're having the vision banquet next week is so we can come together as a church family and pray about how God is is leading us to live this out, to take responsibility for this mission that that Jesus has for us. So you want to get serious about it? One thing that you can do is be here next Sunday at 5 o'clock with your brothers and sisters as we seek God's face and pray for direction. And then pray how God might work in and through your life as part of the body. I'll close with this. 
You know how um, lately, maybe they've been doing it for a while, but uh, when you scroll through your Facebook feed, um, it'll, it has like this memories feature, right? It says, uh, it shows a picture that you posted like a year ago or three years ago or whatever. Well, uh, just this weekend, um, a picture came up on my feed of, of my grandfather, my grandfather, Edward Ortiz. Uh, in 2013, at the age of 97 is when he passed away. He was an incredibly accomplished musician. He loved all kinds of music. I mean, he led bands and orchestras and played the organ in Balboa. And, and I mean, he was such an accomplished musician. If one of his students showed up with an oboe and he didn't know how to play an oboe, you'd teach himself how to play it and then teach the kid. So he loved all kinds of music, including the opera. And, uh, you know, his son, my dad, uh, that legacy was passed on to him. And, uh, and even last, last night, my dad took my son, Dakota, to go see an opera, an Italian opera down, downtown. My granddad loved history and he loved telling stories. And, and because of him, I have an appreciation for stories like, like one I may have told you a couple of, of years ago, the one about the great composer named Giacomo Puccini, one of the greatest composers of all time. In fact, our church has kind of a connection with this guy. In the first service, Gene, who plays the piano here, um, was the piano teacher for Giacomo Puccini's, Puccini's great, great, great grandson. Puccini wrote a, a number of world-class operas like Madame Butterfly, and it was one of his greatest. In fact, AMC um, is, having a, is featuring this opera through uh, their Met Live program. You, you may have seen a, a preview uh, for that last time you went to the movies. In 1922, Puccini was hit with cancer, and he was working on what would be his final opera, uh, an opera called Turindo. And his, ca his cancer got so bad that he, he could barely muster up enough energy to, to work on it. And at one point he said, if I don't finish it, my students will finish it for me. In 1924, they took Puccini to Brussels to operate on him, and two days after the surgery, he died. Well, his students did complete Turindo. In fact, in 1926, Turindo premiered at the Opera House in Milan, Italy. The conductor that night was Puccini's favorite student, Arturo Toscanini. And, and the opera was going magnificently, and everybody was just enthralled and, and wrapped up in this opera as they watched this especially intense scene where this slave girl chooses death to save the man that she loves. And when that scene was over, Toscanini, with tears streaming down his face, stopped the orchestra. And he put down his baton. And he turned around to face the audience and he cried out, thus far the master wrote, but he died. And the opera house just packed with people and performers just became absolutely silent and still. And Tuscanini just stood there. But then a smile started to slowly take over his face. And he wiped the tears from his eyes, and he picked up his baton, and he broke the silence when he said, but his disciples finished his work. When Christ returned to the Father, 
He left a masterpiece for us to complete. This is an opportunity to be involved in the most significant work in the world. He has invited us to be a part of his plan to save the world by his grace through the power of the gospel. And so my last question for you this morning is this. How will your life look differently this week? If you believe this, how will your life look differently this week? If you really believe that you are filled with the Holy Spirit and God has a calling on your life. I don't care how how ill-equipped you think that you are or how weak you think that you are. Jesus gave us all, give everyone the resources that we need to live a life of true significance and true fulfillment if our significance is found in him. He has given us the gospel and he's given us his spirit. The question is, are we living as if we really believed that the Holy Spirit is within us and that the gospel is the power of God? Just look at whether or not, you know, our priorities line up with his priorities, whether or not his sacrifice compels us to sacrifice. So, I mean, real practical. I mean, what changes, inspired by gratitude, right? Inspired by the fact that you know that that Jesus is your king and and you are a loyal follower of, of his in his kingdom, What will you stop doing because it doesn't glorify God? What will you stop doing just to make room for something else that you know he's calling you to do because you know that you can't do it all? What will you start doing to be a part of what God is doing in the world? There's nothing more important than what God is doing in the world. So, Write it down. Pray over it. Don't just hear the message and then, and then you know, get in the car, turn on the radio, forget what we talked about, and then, and then all of a sudden the moment's gone. Write it down or tell somebody and ask them to pray for you. What needs to change in your life in response to this gospel of grace and the mission that God has given to us by his grace? And then, you know what? Let us pray for you. Let the church pray for you. Let's pray together. Let's come together, I mean, either in your crowded houses uh, or, or, you know, after the service by the cross or next Sunday at five, be here. Let's be a family that prays together, that seeks God's uh, face, and together we're determined to glorify God in everything it is that he has called us to do. Be involved in the work that is supremely significant and watch what God does through you. This is the power of the gospel. It moves us, it changes our lives, our priorities, and the lives of those around us. This is Jesus' promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. The gospel is the power of God. He is not limited by your limitations or my limitations. Will you trust him with your life this morning if you haven't done so already? 
will you then use even your weaknesses to advance his kingdom of grace all for God's glory? Let's pray that we live this. Amen? And would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that even when we were your enemies, you loved us. Even when we were not interested in you in the least, you invaded our hearts and lives, opened our eyes to see the reality of who you are, and there was no other logical uh, response other than to trust Jesus as our King, as our Lord, as our Savior. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are yours and yours alone. God, we thank you for your good news that you sent Jesus, our Messiah, our Deliverer, to live for us and to give us credit for that because even our best works are as filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Christ. And so we need the righteousness of Christ and we thank you that you give us credit for Jesus' life. And beyond that, you, you sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can be united with you and with each other. And God, I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here that has not put their faith and trust in you yet, that, that you would enable them to do that this morning. That you would invade their hearts, that you would kick open the door of their hearts and let yourself in. And have their eyes opened to the reality of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that their hearts would be filled with love for you. Their hearts would be filled with gratitude. Their hearts would be filled with a primary purpose of glorifying you with their lives and living accordingly. The greatest purpose in the world. To glorify you, to enjoy you forever. And God, we know it's not so much that, that the church has a mission, but your mission has the the, the church, that, that you advance your mission through us, and, and uh, God, we pray that you would do that through us, through us as individuals, and through us as a church. May we not be just wrapped up in our own Christian comforts, but that we would be willing to, to sacrifice because you sacrificed for us. Nothing Nothing glorifies you more than us being totally and completely satisfied in you, living for you and for your purposes. God, change our hearts. For those sitting in, in the chairs who are wrestling with uh, your call in their lives, God, I pray that, that you would just give them a determination first and foremost to glorify you. start there by seeking first the kingdom of God. We pray these things in your name. So your head's still back.